This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Signing documents on the hood of a Porsche. Folding car tables set up in a driveway. Witnessing remotely through Zoom. These are some of the ways estate lawyers are improvising the execution of wills with the need for social distancing and fears of catching the coronavirus. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So, Eric, are estate lawyers seeing an uptick in calls and from whom? Yes, we spoke with several estate lawyers across the country, and all of them said immediately, yes, they had had an uptick in calls, more calls than some of them have experienced in their entire careers coming in in a pretty short period of time. And these are a range of people that they're hearing from, including older, wealthy folks and even working class healthcare professionals. So uh, clearly there's a wide array of people who are concerned about this right now and, and have been reaching out to get their wills done. So wills have to be signed and witnessed. What are some of the strangest situations you've heard about? Well, the lawyers all had a similar story about how social distancing has made it complicated for them to execute these wills because normally they do meet their clients in person in their offices or sometimes they'll go to their homes. Then they'll, they'll witness them sign it and there will also be an, at least one other witness who has to watch it happen. And with social distancing, their offices have been closed. Some people are afraid to be out of their houses at all. So they're trying to work around this as much as possible. One lawyer I spoke with met his clients, a wealthy couple in their 50s in Long Island, met them in an empty parking lot. They were both wearing face masks and plastic gloves, and they signed their will on the hood of their Porsche while the lawyer and another law partner watched on as, as witnesses, and they were wearing masks. And they, they kept six feet away from each other, and they were in a hurry to get it done because they were concerned about what could happen. Similar story out in California, another lawyer has been going to clients with a card table, setting it up in the driveway of their homes, doing a similar routine to get the wills signed. One New York estate lawyer is using Zoom for witnessing. Is that legal? Well, it's, she told me that it's not specifically legal. It's also not specifically illegal. But the way she sees it is that if her clients do unfortunately pass away in this uh, pandemic, then at least she would have something. There would be some evidence that there were witnesses when it was signed, that somebody observed it being signed. Perhaps it was done remotely and over a video, but at least it was done. She says that at least she'd be able to sign an affidavit and present it to a judge if she needed to, and that hopefully it would work out if necessary. She did tell me that in these situations that these clients will be allowed to come in when the pandemic passes, and they'll be able to redo everything in person, and she's not going to charge them for that. And then they can do it the right way that time. That was one of the saddest lines in your story. She said, when the pandemic is over, if all my clients are still alive, I'll have them come in and we'll do it properly. Now, in New York, you can have electronic notarization, but that's not true in California. So they have an additional problem there. Correct. Out in California, there is another in-person human contact you have to have just to have your document notarized. And that really does complicate things for them because, again, you know, they're in shelter in place out there. How do you meet up with these people? How, how urgent is it that you get it done? And are you willing to take that risk that you might, you know, pick up the virus just in the process of going to get your will notarized? It's a bit ironic that you'd be putting yourself at risk in order to get a will executed. 
And here in New York, they are actually pushing to get electronic signatures legalized. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened yet. Some of the lawyers have told me that the governor should issue an executive order legalizing electronic signatures during the course of the pandemic to allow them to do this more easily. Well, Um, electronic signatures are already used pretty widely in other areas of law. I mean, I know when we signed our lease for our apartment here, everything was done electronically. We click on the signature section and it puts our initials in and that's legally accepted in a lot of different areas of law in a lot of different states. How expensive is it to get a will drawn up? I assume it depends on your estate, but even just to get a lawyer on the phone to start drafting a will. Well, the lawyers that we spoke with said their services usually cost $2,500 to $3,500. They seem to suggest that there were other services available that came along with that, other documents that people generally get along with their will related to Mexican and other estate issues like trusts. You know, they, they try to give a package deal <laughs> that you get for that amount, but it usually does cost us a few thousand dollars and it's not necessarily in everyone's budget, whether there's a pandemic or not. And suppose someone drafts a will and signs it, but it hasn't been witnessed. There was an instance in your story where the lawyer said she was hoping that the hospital workers, for a patient that was hospitalized, that the hospital workers would witness it. Yeah, that's my understanding and something that I actually wasn't really aware of until we started reporting on this story is that witnesses, you know, they can pretty much be anyone as long as they're willing to sign that they were a witness and agree that they're a witness and potentially, I suppose, go to court to say that they witnessed it. It doesn't really matter who exactly they are. I was told by one lawyer that generally it shouldn't be someone who's getting something from the will because there could be some conflicts of interest involved there or someone could make an allegation about that. But generally, it's people who are not involved with the will at all, maybe don't even know the client. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Eric Larson, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, a crackdown on those $100 rolls of toilet paper. If you've been shopping online for toilet paper or hand sanitizer, you may have been priced out by some shocking price gouging going on. Do you really want to pay $100 for 12 rolls of toilet paper? Well, state law enforcement officials don't want you to pay that, and they're urging Amazon, Walmart, eBay, and other online sellers to crack down on the price gouging that's preying on people's panic over the coronavirus. Joining me is Malthy Mayak, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So, Malthy, tell us about some of the price gouging that's been going on online. So we're seeing a lot of complaints coming in across various states. We did an analysis uh, of over 40 states, and we've seen nearly 6,000 complaints uh, across uh, various U.S. states. And it appears like New York currently is leading the list with 1,350 complaints. And um, we're seeing all sorts of uh, examples. Uh, you know, the AG's offices mostly pointed out home goods or personal care goods, uh, cleaning supplies, uh, toilet paper, uh, things like um, Lysol and Clorox wipes, uh, disinfectant uh, for your homes, as well as masks and hand sanitizer. I think hand sanitizer is one of the products that tops the list for sure. When I went online to check this out, I found some outrageous prices, but then you couldn't even get them at outrageous prices. For example, can you get even masks? 
So I think that there are some third-party sellers. Uh, perhaps, you know, uh, the producers or the manufacturers of the products themselves have run out or stores may have run out of masks. But there are some third-party sellers, perhaps, who stocked up on these goods and are using the online platforms uh, to sell these goods to consumers. Uh, we're seeing various other examples, even going beyond the ones that uh, the state AGs pointed out. If you just sort of look at hashtag price gouging on Twitter, just in the last 48 hours, I saw some really interesting examples of 24 Tylenol tablets being sold on eBay for $55, including $8 for shipping. Um, Amazon Prime, I saw one user talk about cat food, uh, Purina cat food, selling for $1.10 instead of $1.03, which is the typical price. And then there's one mom who also talked about diapers being sold on Amazon um, for uh, $20 more than usual. Uh, so, yeah, so we're seeing all sorts of examples even going beyond those that, you know, one would think of um, as products that would help protect against the coronavirus, like disinfectants and hand sanitizers. So is price gouging illegal? So some states do have laws that uh, say that during emergency situations, sellers can't price goods more than 10% of the usual rate. But there are some states uh, like Ohio, for instance, that don't have anti-price gouging laws. But uh, that's not to say that the attorney general hasn't taken any action. It looks like Ohio is definitely trying to crack down on predatory sales as well. So what are regulators, for example, in Ohio, in New York, doing as far as this gouging is concerned? How are they policing this? We spoke with a few AGs across various states. In Ohio, they're definitely cracking down. In New York uh, as well, uh, we're seeing a lot of various steps or actions being taken. For instance, uh, the state of Washington has 10 investigators that are doing the rounds, going to brick-and-mortar stores and trying to um, look at products and the prices. We're looking at cease and desist letters that the state of Oregon has begun sending out to online stores. So, yeah, all sorts of actions in terms of trying to crack down on these practices currently. Do the online platforms have an incentive to self-police besides the public good? So you would think that, you know, um, some of these uh, platforms are responsible in terms of enforcing illegal activities on online marketplaces. Uh, and I spoke with an Amazon spokeswoman who said that they're really disappointed in what's going on and they are trying to put down these uh, listings and suspend accounts when they're seeing third-party sellers uh, indulge in such activities. Uh, but, you know, we do have some who may argue that maybe the online pl platforms aren't doing enough or they aren't incentivized to um, to crack down on such activity because they get a cut from these sales. And, you know, these sort of uh, allegations against online platforms happen also when it comes to instances of counterfeit goods in normal times as well. So I guess that, you know, uh, one would uh, expect the, the online platforms to do more, uh, given that currently we're in uh, a pandemic situation and there's so much panic buying going on. Uh, you know, we're still seeing all these complaints. I think the, the, the online platforms are trying to figure out how best to police this. So we shouldn't expect to see the results of this anytime soon? So I was speaking with the AG of Washington State, and he talked about how he's seeing a trend of these complaints going up. 
the, he said, though, that the fact that attorneys general have come out now and are trying to sort of create awareness around this issue, more and more complaints are coming in, and that's helping them take more action. Now you're seeing, for instance, even a hotline that the state of Oregon has set up. Uh, Washington, for instance, is, is encouraging consumers to send in pictures or screenshots of goods on product shelves or screenshots from their phone of Amazon and eBay and other online marketplace listings. Thanks, Malthy. That's Malthy Mayak, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Turning now to the federal courts. Federal courts are tackling the threat of coronavirus by making scheduling changes, encouraging electronic filing, and restricting access. Federal courts are tackling the threat of coronavirus by making scheduling changes, encouraging electronic filing, and restricting access to facilities, among other things. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. So, Maddie, tell us more about how the federal courts are handling this. Federal courts are very decentralized. You know, we have the U.S. Office of the Courts, uh, and they do a lot of the administrative work. Uh, They can send out guidance, which they have. They have established a task force, but that can only go so far. Courts have a lot of autonomy over what their court does. And we've seen in different areas that are impacted differently by this virus, those courts responding in various ways. So, for example, the Western District of Washington was one of the first courts to respond to this. Then the Ninth Circuit, uh, the Southern District of New York, where we've seen larger outbreaks, those courts have been first. And their orders can range anything from increasing sanitation, you know, telling court goers, if you've been to these countries that have been severely impacted by coronavirus, don't come in if you're feeling flu-like symptoms, all the way to restricting court access to the public, holding oral arguments via telephone. We just saw this in in the D.C. Circuit on Friday. And I think we're going to see more of that in a lot more of these areas as as they get more heavily impacted. Uh, You're going to see a lot more teleconferencing. You're going to see a lot more cases potentially being impacted by these decisions. How did did it go in the D.C. Circuit with those oral arguments? So our reporter, our health reporter, Lydia Wheeler, was listening in at home and covering it. And she uh, was updating people live on Twitter that two of the judges on the case actually were um, booted off off of the call while they were going through this case. And it was actually Judge Griffith was booted off for a few minutes. So it'll be interesting to see if we have some of those technical difficulties that will continue to happen over over these next few weeks or, or months, however long this goes on for. And are any of the courts closed completely? The only courts that I know of that are closed completely are immigration courts. There are certain immigration courts that are completely shut down uh, in response to the virus, but immigration courts aren't Article Three courts or Article Three of the Constitution. Uh, that's where a lot of that's where the district courts are. That's where the federal appeals courts are. They are under the DOJ, so they're under the purview of an office there. Several of them now, a handful of them in larger cities, have been closed due to the you know public health risks that they pose by putting a lot of people in the same room together. Um, a lot of people in waiting rooms an inherently international population of people. So those are the only ones I know of that are closed outright. Other courts are merely closed to the public. And 
you know, that really restricted access to the court for people who are arguing there. Um, but I don't know of any court that has completely closed its doors and stopped doing work. So jury trials seem to be the opposite of what you should be doing for coronavirus with people in close quarters sitting next to each other and then going back into a jury room and a lot of people. Are any jury trials going on right now or have they been put on hold? Like everything with the courts, it really is depending on where you are. So some courts have decided to suspend jury trials for the time being. Central District of California, uh, they're not going to call juries until April 13th. And, you know, other courts are making decisions based on their population, based on the outbreak in their area. But it was interesting. Last week, Judge Claire Egan, the uh, president of the Judicial Conference, which is the policymaking body of the federal judiciary, she said that uh, there was a, a jury trial that was going to proceed in her district. And um, both parties decided to go forward without a jury trial. Jurors had been calling in and asking if they could not have to come in and, and be in a room with people during during this outbreak. So even she said this is going to be really kind of an interesting thing to watch going forward. Juries could potentially be impacted and it might be hard for courts to get the appropriate age groups of people or, or number of people they might need for juries. Are federal courts getting any kind of guidance? Yes. The U.S. Office of the Courts, they've developed a plan at the end of February. They established a task force. They sent out recommended guidance that courts could kind of fill in the blanks on for their particular court. The task force is meeting on a regular basis. Just last week, the director of the U.S. courts, James Duff, sent out a letter to courts with recommended guidelines. But the interesting thing about the courts is that U.S. administrative office of the courts can only do so much. And it really takes the courts themselves to make those decisions and determinations. The U.S. courts can recommend specific guidelines, but the courts are ultimately the ones that will decide whether or not they actually take them. Thanks, Maddie. That's Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter.